I'm going to get you to go to the back middle portion of your worship guide where you'll find the sermon scripture. Uh, We are in the gospel according to Luke. Just to orient you to Luke's gospel, if you're not super familiar with it, Luke's gospel is a uh, a carefully researched first century document written by a guy named Luke. It records the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It was finished, distributed in uh, in the ancient Near East somewhere as early as 63 A.D., And in the first chapter of his gospel, Luke tells his readers why he's writing this. He says that he writes, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. What you've heard about Jesus, the rumors that are spreading, maybe there's other written accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, they also wrote gospel accounts. Luke is writing his gospel so that you can increase in faith, so that you can grow and you can mature. The word gospel uh, was a word that was attached to the beginning of this writing that Luke did, and it means good news. It means the best kind of news. And the good news that Luke is communicating uh, is that in order to undo sin and all the deadly consequences of sin in our world, God entered into the world by sending his own son, Jesus. And that by faith in Jesus' life, death, his resurrection, sin and death are being overcome. Where we are in Luke chapter 6, again, we've just been slowly working our way through the gospel, is that Jesus has begun his public teaching ministry. We're in the very early days. Last week, when Andy was preaching for us, Jesus appointed the 12 disciples, also known as the 12 apostles. These are 12 men who would minister beside him. They'd be closest with him in the book of Acts, which is Luke's sequel to this. Um, After the time of Jesus' ascension back into heaven, these 12 apostles would be sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit into all corners of the world with this gospel, with this good news. But at this point, here we are in Luke 6, they're fresh. Um, It's their first day on the job. There are no battle scars at this point. So what will Jesus say to his newly appointed disciples? How will Jesus go about training them for ministry and mission? What words will Jesus uh, give to them before he sends them into the world? And this is what our section is about. So if you look at the back middle portion, I'll read for us our scripture. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, in hearing the voice of Jesus this morning, this is a hard word. We ask that you would use these hard words to make soft hearts in our church. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 6 is Luke's reporting of one of Jesus' most well-known, most studied, most looked at sermons. It shares a lot of similarities with maybe a sermon you've heard of, the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, a kind of companion to Luke, is three chapters long. It's quite big. And there are so many similarities between Luke chapter 6 and that sermon that most commentators believe what Luke is doing here is he's summarizing, he's condensing, he's kind of giving the Coles Notes version of that sermon. Perhaps Jesus delivered a few different times in a few different formats. You don't have it written in your bulletin here, but last week when Andy was preaching, he read from uh, just chapters proceed, or the verses preceding this. And in, in verses 17 through 19, there's a bit of a, a stage being set. Jesus is delivering this sermon, not only to his newly appointed 12 apostles, but also to a great crowd that was gathering around him. It was a great multitude of people, verse 19 says, from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So there's a massive group around Jesus here in chapter 6. But if you look at verse 20, there's something that Jesus does to kind of particularize his sermon. It says that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. In other words, in this sermon, Jesus is primarily speaking to disciples. That is, those who are following him in his way of life. Jesus hasn't come simply to gather a crowd. He's not, you know, just interested in in gathering a group of people where there's a lot of energy and excitement. What he's looking for is people who are committed to him, people who will live their lives for him. In other words, Jesus has come to make disciples, personal, devoted, lifelong followers of him. And that's what Jesus wants from you. That's what he wants from me. That's what he wants from us. Not a casual weekly connection to him, but a daily walk, committed, devoted, following him in his way of life. In this sermon, Jesus begins to lay out what the life of discipleship is like. He lifts up his eyes, and he looks on whoever would follow him, and he tells them the content of discipleship, what discipleship is all about. It'll actually take us a couple of weeks to walk our way through this entire sermon, but in this very first part, it seems like what Jesus is saying to these disciples, again, fresh on the job, newly christened, buckle up. Your vision of discipleship is perhaps not what is accurate. Let me tell you what it actually is like. And this is our outline for this morning. Jesus comes to correct our vision of discipleship so that you can celebrate the blessed life and avoid the life of woe. Jesus comes to correct your vision of discipleship so that you can live the blessed life, you can celebrate the blessed life and avoid the life of woe. First part, Jesus comes to correct your vision of discipleship. Jesus' 12 disciples, they were about to enter into a very different kind of life that they were used to living. They went from uh, business owners, civil employees, to suddenly being intimately connected with Jesus Christ, this traveling teacher, this healer, who in a very short time would become public enemy number one for the religious people in Israel. And of course, it wouldn't just be Jesus who would face this kind of animosity and dislike. It would very soon be his own disciples who would be hated would be falsely accused of troublemaking. Nearly all of them, by the end of their life, were either in prison or dead. So how were these disciples, who were just called by Jesus, how were they to understand this sudden shift? Suddenly having kind of some good things in life to now being deprived of good. Formerly fairly comfortable and suddenly uncomfortable. How were they supposed to respond to the sudden mistreatment at the hands of friends and family and neighbors that that they didn't have until they started following Jesus. Again, for many of these disciples, life was pretty good before Jesus came. And now things were about to become not so good. 
How are they supposed to understand all of this? How are we supposed to understand that? Maybe you have some of that experience yourself in the Christian faith. You began to follow Jesus. You were convinced of who he said he was. But then life didn't immediately get better. It got harder. Uh, Some relationships got more tricky. Uh, Circumstances in your life got more complicated. How are you supposed to understand that? Um, When you have bad eyesight, everything is affected by that by that bad eyesight. Everything is affected, and it's affected all the time. So if you've got poor eyesight, it's not just you know, when you read books that that's difficult, but when you've got overall bad eyesight, uh, you know, um, the television that you're watching, that looks blurry. The people that you talk to, they're a little bit blurry as well. You misapprehend you know, signs on the road. Hopefully you're not driving if this is the case, but you know, everything is blurred. And as we go through the section, one thing is obvious. Jesus is telling his disciples, You've all got seriously bad eyesight. You have a bad vision of what discipleship is about. You don't look at riches or tears or hunger or plenty rightly. It's distorted to you. And Jesus says, I need to correct that vision. That word blessed that Jesus uses repeatedly in the first section in Greek, it's the word markarius. It shares a lot with that Hebrew word, perhaps you're familiar with it, the word shalom. And both of these words carry with it the idea, certainly, of being truly happy, of being fulfilled. But it carries much more than that. To be blessed is to have God's own favor resting on you. Uh, For you to be confident that the trajectory of your life is headed for ultimate good because you are in God Almighty's hands and he cares for you. That's what it means to be blessed. And Jesus begins by saying to his disciples, blessed are you, blessed are you. Who are poor, favored, loved, are you who are hungry and in mourning. Blessed are you who are hated and despised because you're my disciples. You're doing great. And we look at that vision of discipleship with our eyes and we say, what? That makes no sense. I don't get it. The word woe that Jesus uses in the second section, it's a cry of horror, it's an exclamation. It's a shout of fear. Uh, You might cry, woe, if if you saw a car careening towards a cliff with no brakes. Woe to them. If you're in the car, woe is me. How dreadful. My doom is sure. And Jesus says, woe to you disciples. Woe to you who, who want to follow me. What horror is in store for you who are rich? who have been filled with good things, who are filled with laughter and mirth, who are well-liked and well-respected in your community. And we look at that vision of discipleship under Jesus and we say, what? That doesn't make it, I don't, I don't get it. That's not clear. I hope you notice there's a pattern in Jesus' teaching here. Uh, first section, blessed is the poor. Bottom section, woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, woe to the filled. Blessed are those who weep. Woe to those laughing. Blessed are the hated and excluded. Woe to the well-loved. I hope you can see that in the text. And this is what's happening. The very things that Jesus says are the cause of celebration and joy among Christians, these are actually the very things which you and I tend to avoid at all costs. And the very things that Jesus says that um, ought to be causes of fear and trembling within the church among disciples are the very things, look at them, are the very things that many people orient their entire lives trying to gain and to achieve. And so friends, listen, unless Jesus comes to you and he corrects your eyesight, he corrects your vision of discipleship, 
You may be right now exactly where God Almighty wants you to be, but instead of celebrating the blessed life, you are grumbling and you are complaining the whole time. Unless Jesus comes and he corrects your vision, you may live your entire life chasing after things that he warns you end in a horror and in a nightmare. People with poor vision, they must depend on people with better vision. And Jesus comes to you this morning with perfect vision. He sees things not just as they appear to be, but as they really are. He sees things not as they are right now, but as they will be stretched on into eternity. And in order to be a disciple of Jesus, we first need this. We need Jesus to come and to correct our vision of discipleship. Discipleship under Jesus is defined by Jesus, not by us. And maybe this is another way of saying the Christian life is a life of faith. It's trusting what God says more than what your eyes can see. Our vision often betrays us. We might think discipleship means this or it means that. But the life of following Jesus, the life of faith, is often not what we think it is. In this sermon of Jesus, as you just read it, I don't even feel like a sermon is difficult because it's so powerful kind of on its own. Jesus' sermon is a perfect example that our vision tends to deceive us. So, first part, Jesus comes to correct our vision of discipleship. Second, so that you can celebrate the blessed life. This is what Jesus wants for you. He he is warning you. He's coming to give you the correct vision so that you can enjoy and celebrate the blessed life. And what we're going to do is we're just going to stroll through the text so you can keep your text in front of you. And we're just walking through, considering each one of the points that Jesus says so that disciples today can better understand what he's trying to tell us. Let's look at the first uh, of the blessings that Jesus says. Sometimes this is called the Luke and Beatitudes, if you've ever heard that word. The Luke and Beatitudes, the blessings uh, that Luke records. Uh, the first one that Jesus says, this is, this is evidence uh, that God's hand of favor is on you. Blessed are you who are poor, verse 20 says, for yours is the kingdom of God. As we looked at over the past few weeks, many of the disciples of Jesus actually left quite a bit behind in order to follow him. They left uh, thriving businesses, they left stable jobs, and they walked into a life of like relative poverty in order to follow Jesus. There wasn't like uh, um, an RRSP plan when you follow Jesus. There wasn't like a great compensation for healthcare and everything. They were dependent on the goodwill of others to support them. And what Jesus is saying to them who have adopted poverty in order to follow them, says you are blessed for leaving that behind. For yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to convince these disciples who have no security in the future, the trade-off isn't even close. What you've lost is not comparable to what you have gained in following me. This is very similar to verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. The good things in the world that disciples of Jesus must turn down so that they can faithfully follow Jesus, Jesus is trying to convince them that is not the full story. There is much more here. Disciples who are made poor or hungry for following Christ, look, will one day be fully satisfied. In some parts of the world, this is a legitimate concern, right? Becoming a follower of Jesus today means you will lose your job and go hungry tomorrow. It's it's a trade-off immediately. And to those people, Jesus asks for faith. And he says, though you hunger now, believe me, you are blessed you will one day be fully satisfied. 
For many of us living in Halifax, following Jesus uh, means experiencing poverty and hunger perhaps in different ways. Obedience to Jesus means that we will have to walk away from things or, or go without certain things that we think will enrich us, will sustain us, will give us what we need. Because Jesus actually says these things are, are obstacles to following him with a whole heart. We're told by various people, by people in the world, by our friends, family, even our own hearts, our own desires, that certain things, certain dating relationships, certain job opportunities, certain entertainment choices, these will help me thrive. Uh, They will fill me. They will satisfy me. But when we look in God's word, we say that these things are actually sinful. They're hindrances to following Jesus wholeheartedly. And so we have to abandon them. We have to be without them, to go without them. And that might feel like a real loss. Like we're missing out on something essential to our survival. uh, Something to our well-being. And Jesus looks at us as we go without these things. And he says, my favor and my presence are with you for doing that. You are so blessed in this. One example of this, I think, pretty clearly, is is in giving. Um, God, in his word, commands his people to be generous with their money, to be cheerful and generous givers, uh, to give for the work of the gospel, to give to the church, to give to the poor in our cities, to alleviate poverty around us. And by obeying this command in discipleship, it will necessarily mean that you must go without. Right? When you give money to other people, you will not be able to spend that money on yourself. But what does Jesus say to those who give generously? What one author calls a purpose-driven poverty. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. You are bl- God's favor is on you when you go without, when you feel hungry, when you feel empty in service to God. Look what comes next. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus continues to correct a wrong vision of discipleship, which often says the life of following Jesus ought to be easy. It ought to be comfortable. It ought to just go with the grain of my nature. There really shouldn't be much that I need to change in my life. It's just kind of a comfortable tag along to life as I've always lived it. It'll barely interrupt things. But that's not the case. Following Jesus will often disrupt your life in ways that will hurt that will uh, be felt in a real way. The poverty and the hunger will cause real tears. It will cause you to weep. One of the images, one of the prime images that Jesus gives of discipleship is that of cross-bearing, carrying an instrument of torture on your back. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, not just the spiritual shock troops of the church, but if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross and follow me. And so listen, Jesus here isn't saying, uh, as a Christian, you should never shed tears for perceived losses. He's not saying, look, um, you're getting a better deal. So so do not weep for what what you are putting behind you. Uh, The things, the losses, uh, the people uh, that sometimes are lost in obedience to Jesus. Jesus is saying these tears are very real. But again, Jesus says, these tears are not the full story. One day you will laugh. You will, it will be put in proper context. You are blessed. My favor was with you when you gave that up. We sing in a song in the church, Eternal Weight of Glory. And we sing together through tears. Every year we thought was wasted. Every night we cried, how long? 
All will be a passing moment in our Savior's victory song. Again, the Christian life is a life of faith. It's believing God more than what your eyes can see. One of the last things that Jesus' disciples are told um, is that they will face uh, not only poverty and hunger and tears, but they will face the hatred of others, the ire of others. And this is a stunning statement. And again, one that requires the eyes of faith, requires corrected vision. Really, because since the day that this was spoken to Jesus' disciples across the world down to today, a bloody persecution and martyrdom of disciples of Jesus has been carried out to a, to a terrifying scale. Jesus is here getting, ready, getting them ready for this event. But he's saying to them, in the face of this, you are blessed. Shalom, peace to you. Happy ought you be when this happens. Maybe you faced a taste of this in your life. Maybe you faced more. I don't know all of your stories. You've been mocked for your faith. You've been belittled. You've been passed over. You've been tempted to hide and cover up your faith because you don't want to be seen as being primitive, superstitious, just playing make-believe on Sundays for believing this good news. No one likes to be treated this way. No, no one likes to be hated, maybe especially Canadians, maybe especially Haligonians. We do not like this. Jesus said to expect this, though. If you are faithfully following him in your home, in your workplace, where you go to play, if they hated me, Jesus says, they'll hate you too. So how should Jesus' faithful disciples receive this promised rejection by many, this, this mocking for living out our faith? How should we react when either publicly or privately we're dismissed or rejected for Jesus' sake? By dancing a jig, by leaping for joy, that is the response we're supposed to have. Jesus is saying, you are in holy company. All of God's most favorite ones through the entire age of man, this is what has happened to them. And again, this is a hard word. I say it with a smile <laughs> until it happens to me. But this is the life of faith, trusting what God says more than what your eyes can see. So this is the outline again. Jesus comes to correct our vision of discipleship so that you can celebrate the blessed life. But also, he corrects your vision so that you can avoid the life of woe. Jesus would have you avoid the life of woe. Again, looking at the text, you can see that verses 24 through 26, they're just the mirror image, the inverse of verses 20 through 23. And there's something kind of interesting, I think, happens when, when we consider the words uh, that Jesus speaks here. And you can kind of see it in, in the history of biblical interpretation of different ages have read the Beatitudes or the Lucan Beatitudes that we have in front of us. Because when you read all of the scriptures in light of the Beatitudes, we actually don't really find strong reason to think that Jesus here is just outright prohibiting wealth or riches of all sorts. That he is prohibiting here for his disciples to never enjoy a good meal together or to laugh together with their friends. Or to be liked or to have any kind of favor with other people. When we read the entirety of the Bible, these words actually don't seem to click. They don't seem to line up. Now, some people have taken these words literally uh, without considering the whole Bible, just kind of taking them in isolation. They've concluded, okay, if you are a sincere Christian, abandon all of your riches. Don't eat very much. Maybe just bread and water on occasion. Have a sad face. Shed tears often. And above all, stay away from people. Drive them nuts so that they hate you. And then only then, you are a real Christian. You are a real disciple of Jesus. And there was actually uh, entire like, uh, sectors of the Christian world, mostly ancient, who, who would do exactly that. 
But this is not the picture of Christian maturity that we see in the Bible. It, it really isn't. These same 12 apostles who are being commissioned here by Jesus, they went on to begin the church, the early church uh, in the ancient world that became one of the most joyous, generous, full-hearted communities on the face of, of the earth. Luke wrote a sequel to the gospel according to Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. And listen to how he describes the early church. I'm just going to read to you um, from Acts chapter 2. And I want you to hear the dissonance between perhaps what it seems like Jesus is saying on face value with how his church filled with his spirit actually ended up looking. The church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. And so what we see in, in this early church is not a renunciation of all riches and a vow to poverty, but rather a generous sharing of riches with anyone who has need. Not a refusal to eat good meals, but kindly hosting meals and inviting the poor and the hungry into your home to share in the good things that God has given you. Not a mirthless community, but a glad community with warm and inviting homes that are generous to all. Not always facing direct hatred and persecution, but receiving perhaps a somewhat grudging confession from anyone watching the church from the outside. Something amazing is happening in that community. The point of all of these woes, if you look at them, what Jesus is warning his disciples then and now is this. If you orient your life toward riches, fullness, laughter, and respect, Apart from service to Jesus Christ and the service of others, you will one day lose it all. If you make your life, if you orient your entire life around pursuing riches and wealth now, and you are not generous towards the work of the gospel, not generous towards the plight of the poor, today you are receiving the only consolation that wealth will give you ever. If you fill up yourself with good things, everything you desire, you do, not, you do not stop anything good from entering your belly or into your life. Even the things that God himself would say that you ought to deny and repent of in order to follow him. You will one day go hungry. Those things will not satisfy you in the day to come. If you only seek lightness and an easy road, if you do everything you can to avoid any kind of suffering that might come as being a disciple of Jesus, there will come a day where all that is left for you is tears, weeping, and howling. And if you desire people's admiration and approval more than Jesus Christ at the end of your life looking at you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant, you will face the same rejection that those who rejected the prophets of old faced. I want you to consider your life for a moment. I want you to think on it. And what Jesus is calling you to, either give up and deny for his sake, what things you are to go without, or how you ought to reorient your life to follow Jesus and live the blessed life. If you were a character in a story, if there was an author who was describing not just uh, what you said and what you did, kind of external things, but was able to detail intimately your emotions and your deepest desires and your motivations, your goal in life, what would that story say about you? Would the story say, 
Your entire life was oriented and aimed at a successful career, wealth and comfort and convenience, though that meant a lukewarm commitment to Jesus. Would the story say that all you wanted in life was for friends and family to see you and admire you and like you, though that meant never boldly sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them? The world might say, those actually sound like really good stories. They sound like blessed stories. But Jesus looks at those stories and he says, those, those are tales of woe. Those are headed for disaster. Stories that will go nowhere, that will ultimately end in disappointment and finally death. So where do you go from here? If Jesus has come and, and in his mercy and in his grace is correcting your vision of discipleship, as very different from what you might have imagined it before, and from perhaps even how you're living it now. What do you do? What do I do now? The solution to everything. Jesus' main preaching point, and our main preaching point, is to repent and to believe in the good news. To repent and to believe. This is again Jesus' message. This is our message too. Admit that you've been filling up your life with the wrong stuff going in the wrong direction. Ask for God to redirect you, to give you his spirit so that you can live a new kind of life and trust what he says from this day on more than what your eyes tell you. But when Jesus comes to correct our vision, we are finally able to see something else much more clear too. We're actually, be able to, we're actually given vision to see beyond ourselves and our daily successes and failures when it comes to discipleship. And we are able to say Jesus Christ. We're able to see Jesus clearly for who he is. That Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet was made poor for you. Jesus Christ, in whom all of the goodness of God filled, became hungry for you in the wilderness. Jesus Christ, who is the source of all joy and gladness for you, wept tears, bitter tears for your sin and for your salvation. And Jesus Christ, though he made everyone in this room and everyone in the world, at the hand of the world, faced hatred and rejection and ultimately death on a wooden cross for us and for our salvation. That is the Jesus that we are to see. Your hope, friends, is not in the degree of your poverty or the amount of your tears or how serious you take discipleship, but in the one who for your sake entered into poverty and hunger and tears and ultimately death and hatred for your salvation. Friends, let this be your story, imitating the one who went before you to undo your sins. Though you may be a great sinner, you have a great savior in Jesus Christ. Now may you be a disciple of Jesus, set apart from the crowd. May he lift his eyes upon you so that you can walk in God's purposes for you. May God's spirit reveal to you your poor vision of the life of discipleship, the life following Jesus. And by that same spirit, would he now correct that vision so you can see things rightly. When you experience poverty, hunger, tears, and unjust hatred for the sake of Christ, may you believe by faith that it is worth it. When you're tempted to build your whole life toward riches, fullness, lightness, and peace, by avoiding the way of Jesus. 
May you repent and believe what God says more than what your eyes can see. And may you, this morning, see beyond yourself, see beyond your sin and your failures to see the Savior, the one you are blessed through because he gave himself fully for you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercy to us, your people. We ask today that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can believe all that you command us to believe and we can live as you've commanded us to live. We thank you for your kindness to us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.